You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we hear about new risk factors for primary hyperparathyroidism. Primary hyperparathyroidism, it's actually the third most common endocrine disorder, and so that up to 2% of postmenopausal women actually may have this disease. A neuromuscular blocking agent in anesthesia. The use of intermediate modern neuromuscular blocking agents is associated with uh, an increased incidence of postoperative deoxygenation. But first, earlier this week, NCPOD, that's the National Confidential Inquiry into Patient Outcome and Death, a charity which reports on health outcomes in the UK, reported on bariatric surgery. I went to the press conference to meet Ian Martin, Clinical Coordinator for Surgery, and started by asking him why they did this report. As people will be aware, uh, bariatric surgery is a relatively new surgical discipline. It's developed fairly dramatically in terms of the increase in number of procedures over the last 10 years. And so the specialty associations involved in that uh, surgery came to NCPOD and suggested uh, that it would be a fruitful area for looking at to try and see what the general quality of care was and whether there were remediable factors in the quality of care for patients who were receiving bariatric uh, surgery. It's clearly uh, something that's going to increase because we know from NICE's assessment, health technology assessments, that uh, this is a highly effective procedure in selected patients. Uh, for morbid obesity, that's patients with a BMI of more than 40, uh, or for patients with moderate obesity, which is also associated with comorbidities, which are related to obesity, that those patients unquestionably uh, derive both clinical benefit, and that is cost-effective if you look over a longer term. There should be attempts at non-surgical management of obesity prior to referral into a bariatric service, uh, and that patients should be uh, treated intensively in a multidisciplinary bariatric uh, environment. Were you looking at how GPs refer to these these clinics, or were you uh, looking at the clinics themselves? Yes, we did look at the quality of referral uh, and to what extent NICE guidance was being complied with. Because of limitations on resources, quite frankly, and, and our methodology, uh, although it would have been lovely to go into primary care and actually directly involve them, uh, in reality, we are relying on you know, the referral uh, documentation, which is available in the, the, the secondary care records. Yeah. Uh, and what we did see was that 15% of patients are referred into bariatric uh, surgical units who do not meet NICE criteria. Um, now, some of those, most of those patients were then actually seen in the uh, independent sector and, and treated uh, you know, with private funding. Many of them were self-referred, actually. So um, once this referral is done, gold standard, NICE says that they should be seen by a multidisciplinary team. So um, the surgeon, a dietitian, endocrinologist, you know, various other people who will be involved in their management. Um, you did look at this both in, in NHS units and in the private units. So uh, uh, what were you looking for there? Okay, well, we were looking 
at an organisational level for whether MDTs actually happened and if they did, who was in those MDTs. And then at a patient level, we asked what type of individual professionals had those patients actually seen. And what we found was that there, there is a difference. Uh, if you're treated uh, and privately funded, you are much less likely uh, to be seen in a multidisciplinary team or discussed by a full range of professionals than if you're uh, treated in a, an NHS uh, unit. Mm. Does that mean the care isn't as good? Um, it, it, what is important is that people have access to the appropriate professionals for their particular circumstances. So, for example, if you've got sleep apnea, you should be seeing a respiratory physician and probably the anaesthetist uh, as part of a multidisciplinary team before you actually make that decision to undertake surgery. There was examples, however, and we put one in the report, of exemplary care, where there were no formal MDTs, but all of those professionals were involved. It was well documented in the notes, both in the pre-assessment of the patient and also in the, the post-operative uh, management of the patient. So it's entirely possible without a formal MDT to get good quality care. Now, as a matter of public policy, however, is that good? Well, uh, th there are other things that accrue, other benefits that accrue from running a multidisciplinary team. You learn a lot more, you would identify problems earlier, uh, and you have the capability to audit and, and all of those other things that MDTs can deliver. But in terms of delivery of individual care to an individual patient, it is entirely possible to do that without necessarily having a formalised MDT. There was a large proportion of the patients who weren't seeing an anaesthetist prior to their surgery. Now, in patients who are morbidly obese with all the comorbidities, um, that's quite worrying. Yeah. They're not all, of course, uh, morbidly obese. Some of them you know, had a lower weight, uh, particularly, as I, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of those patients who are doing this as a lifestyle choice, who might actually be relatively light and not have any comorbidities. So there's a group of patients that maybe don't need to see an anaesthetist beforehand. But certainly... Uh, the majority of uh, weightier patients with significant comorbidities uh, would benefit from seeing an anaesthetist in the preoperative period. So uh, when, our, um, when our advisors looked at the anaesthetic input in the uh, pre-admission phase, they felt that of those patients who hadn't uh, been seen, seen an anaesthetist, uh, a significant number of them uh, really would have benefited from doing so, at least a third. Mm. Now, if we jump to uh, post-operative care, 29% of patients hadn't had the sort of recommended telephone follow-up to see how they were doing. Yeah. Did that surprise you? Well, follow-up care is vital for uh, patients who've had bariatric surgery because it's not just about the operation. You, you need uh, a lot of support for the uh, physical, metabolic and psychological changes that occur after surgery. It should not be regarded as a quick fix. So if you don't have access to that, you may well run into difficulties. And indeed, we show in the report examples of individuals who did run into difficulties because they didn't have uh, that, that post-operative support. And that starts really with a good discharge summary because many uh, general practitioners will not have an enormous experience of managing patients who've had bariatric surgeries. Of course, a lot of these patients, as we've said, 
are going to get benefit in terms of those other diseases which are caused by obesity. Uh, and some of those changes occur very rapidly, like uh, you know, diabetes. Their, their glucose management can change you know, within 24 hours. So clearly it's important that GPs from the outset know what to expect uh, and that there's a clear treatment plan uh, for the follow-up uh, period. So um, you have various recommendations from this. Have you got a top line? Well, there are a range of, uh, of recommendations, but one of the key ones is that all patients need to have access to all of the multidisciplinary range of professionals that is appropriate for their care because it's absolutely vital that this is recognised as a multidisciplinary uh, package of care. It's not just about a single operation. That was Ian Martin from NCPOD and links to the full report are available from the podcast page. Now, untreated primary hyperparathyroidism is known to be implicated in a growing range of health problems, including hypertension, myocardial infarction, stroke, and even some breast and prostate cancer. A paper that's been published online on bmj.com looks at a new risk factor for developing the condition. I'm joined by Julie Peck, instructor and attending physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital as part of Harvard Medical School, who's one of the authors on the paper. Thanks for talking to us, Julie. Great, thank you. So you've looked at um, the role of calcium intake um, and development of primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, Why did you decide to look at that? What was already known about that link? Uh, Just a little bit of background about primary hyperparathyroidism. It's actually the third most common endocrine disorder, and so that up to 2% of postmenopausal women actually may have this disease. Mm. Uh, And it has a lot of sequelae. It can affect bone mineral density, uh, lead to bone fractures, as well as kidney stones, as well as those other things that you mentioned earlier. So I think it's a big problem, but there's not a lot that's understood about what causes um, this uh, hormone disorder. What we do know is that most of these cases are due to parathyroid adenomas, which are uh, tumors that uh, grow and just sort of release this parathyroid hormone into the body out of control. Mm. But we don't know what causes these tumors over a long period of time. Why we chose calcium in particular, the parathyroid gland is actually regulated by calcium. Um, Its role, it helps to maintain stable calcium levels in the blood, and it responds to calcium levels so that... That if calcium blood levels are low, the parathyroid gland normally uh, gets revved up to to help control the calcium levels in the blood. So we thought there was something there, but uh, there's been no prospective studies to look at this association. Yep, and that's what you did. So you've used the Nurses Health Study 1 to do that. What is that study, and and who were the uh, the patient cohort involved in it? So it's a prospective cohort study that started in 1976 with over 121,000 female nurses in the United States. So our particular analysis includes uh, 58,000 of the Nurses Health One participants who in 1986, which we start as our baseline for this particular analysis, um, were ages 39 to 66 at the time and had no diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism and had completed the dietary questionnaires from which we base our uh, calcium assessments. 
Yeah, and how good were those questionnaires? I mean, how good was the data to be able to actually work out calcium intake? Mm-hmm. So these questionnaires have been validated, um, have been very well validated actually, and have been used in a host of other disease studies, um, actually over 150. So they're, they're very well validated questionnaires. Mm, so you're pretty confident about the data that you get back then. So when then you looked at uh, calcium intake and compared it to um, instances of primary hyperparathyroidism, what did you find? When we, when we looked in the 22 years of follow-up and we recorded 277 cases, when we compared the woman who had the highest intake of calcium versus the woman in the lowest group of calcium intake, and this is dividing them into five uh, different groups, mm-hmm. we found that women who uh, were in the highest dietary calcium intake group compared to the lowest had a 44% uh, decreased risk of developing primary hyperparathyroidism. And when we looked at the women who were in the highest calcium supplement intake group compared to the lowest one, we found that they had a 59% uh, decreased risk of developing primary hyperparathyroidism. This is one of the first studies looking at uh, risk factors like this. So how were you able to you know, take account of other potential risk factors, ones that perhaps aren't known about yet? That's a great question. Um, you know, so we try to include as much as we knew, at least from the literature, and have the data for uh, about other potential uh, risk factors, and we included them as uh, in our analysis. Um, that being said, there is the limitation that there are some confounders that we just don't know about that could be influencing the risk of primary hyperparathyroidism, um, some residual confounding that we weren't able to control for. So that is a limitation um, of this analysis. Okay. Um, but despite that, do you feel pretty confident about the, um, the result that you got there then? We do. The findings were really robust across um, numerous sub-analyses, and we have a rich data set of dietary factors, nutritional factors, lifestyle factors, uh, medication use, other diseases um, uh, that we included in our analysis, and our findings overall were pretty robust, that we found this decreased risk of primary hyperparathyroidism in women who are taking more calcium compared to the woman taking less calcium. Okay. Now, it's interesting um, in the PICO, which will be in the print version, where there's a section about generalizability. You say that the study population was female, um, and you've already talked about the increased risk for women, um, and almost entirely white, so that your findings can't necessarily be generalized to men and to other races. So is there an ethnic profile of primary hyperparathyroidism? So that's a great question. Uh, They're actually, in terms of population-based studies before, um, it's been looked at, uh, I think, more in Europe, as well as um, uh, there has been some epidemiologic studies uh, out of um, the Mayo Clinic. Um, But I don't think we have a good handle on the ethnic distributions of primary hyperparathyroidism because some of these other epidemiologic studies have also been in um, predominantly Caucasian populations too. Okay, so it'll be interesting to see if that comes out in the future then. Correct. I think that would be a great question to have answered in the future. Great. So then as a bottom line for your research, do you think that, that women should be taking more calcium, for example? 
Well, I think this study contributes to the ongoing discussion about calcium supplements that is going on currently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, calcium supplements are widely used, um, and uh, the trend over time we also found in our cohorts was that calcium supplement use increased too over time. Um, but you know, answering the question of whether someone should be taking calcium supplements is beyond the scope of our particular study. I think it's something that a patient should discuss individually with their physician um, and weigh the risks and benefits uh, of taking calcium supplements based on their particular disease risk profile and taking into account all the other um, diseases that are, are calcium supplements are, are being used for. And I think certainly there's more work to be done in this area of looking at disease risk factors for primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, you know, we think the, the question is we we don't completely understand what causes these adenomas or tumors, mm-hmm. um, and we want to learn more about this and find out what other lifestyle or dietary uh, factors could contribute to the development of this disease. I think this study shows that diet um, can be associated with disease risk, um, but certainly there's more work to be done to understand it further. There's a lot we don't understand at this point. Great. Well, um, Julie, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about your study. Great. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And that paper's now available online on bmj.com. Now, finally, intermediate-acting neuromuscular blocking agents are used in conjunction with anaesthetics in over 400 million patients every year. However, concerns have been raised that they may cause respiratory complications following surgery, though that's difficult to test due to the many confounding factors involved. A new paper on bmj.com gets around that by matching over 20,000 patients undergoing surgery in Massachusetts General Hospital to controls. Alison Walker, research paper editor for the BMJ, talks to Matthias Eichermann, Director of Research in the Hospital's Surgical Intensive Care Unit, about the study. Some years ago, um, I started getting interested in uh, neuromuscular blocking agents because I found that patients after surgery frequently have some issues related to breathing normally. And um, based on the available literature, I was uh, assuming that neuromuscular blocking agents could put the airway at risk to collapse in the very vulnerable period postoperatively. Years ago, um, people have already assumed uh, early after neuromuscular blocking agents were introduced to clinical practice that um, these findings of subtle residual effects of these drugs at the end of the surgery might uh, affect patients' outcomes. Now, in the past, people haven't really been able to control for many other variables that also would affect outcome of patients after surgery. And so we were in the very nice situation that we have a nice database at the Massachusetts General Hospital that allows us to take all these other uh, variables that might also affect postoperative respiratory function adversely into account. Okay, so uh, what did you find then when you looked at your data? Well, um, we found that uh, the use of intermediate modern neuromuscular blocking agents is associated with uh, an increased incidence of postoperative deoxygenation. 
and uh, even more importantly, uh, increased incidence of severe postoperative complications defined as reintubation at the end of the case and unplanned intensive care unit admission. Yes, yeah, so that's a meaningful clinical outcome, as you mentioned. It, it is, yeah. and, and um, even though we did not primarily um, uh, power our study for mortality, we can say that the patients who developed this complication had a 90-fold increased uh, mortality compared to those who did not develop this complication. So there is no doubt it's meaningful in terms of um, um, outcome, mortality, mobility, and also costs, because um, intensive care treatment is expensive. Yes. I wonder, um, with, there's an accompanying editorial that goes with your paper um, with comments from Professor Jenny Hunter, and she said maybe you didn't stress sufficiently that reversal with neuromuscular monitoring, uh, you found that um, patients actually had a better outcome. I wonder if you could just discuss those issues. Yeah, I think that is a very, very important point. So we do not say that neuromuscular blocking agents are bad drugs and should not be used. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, our group has published data showing that uh, neuromuscular blocking agents can even improve outcome when being used sufficiently. However, we really need to utilize our strategies uh, to avoid residual paralysis at the end of the case properly. So, and here comes the problem. Anesthetists, um, typically by training, are very much focused on looking at um, variables such as tidal volume, blood pressure, oxygen um, saturation. We are not so much um, trained and focused on tailoring our intervention to long-term outcome. Anesthetists yeah. uh, want to see the direct effect. And if a patient breathes well, then if the patient has a normal blood pressure and responds to questions, then typically they think everything is going to be okay. So many anesthesiologists are a little bit reluctant in, in using um, and applying daily the uh, strategies that um, experts are suggesting which is quantitative neuromuscular transmission monitoring mm -hmm. and reversal of a neuromuscular block depending on the results of the quantitative neuromuscular blocking agents. Right. So your message then from your findings for clinical practice is possibly that uh, these two aspects, the need for reversal with quantitative monitoring, needs to be looked at further. Yes. So um, in 2012, uh, there is only neostigmine, which is commonly available uh, around the world, which is an, um, sort of a dirty drug, you could say, because it's an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor. Yeah. What it does is basically it unspecifically increases the concentration of acetylcholine at the postsynaptic membrane. But also, you know, uh, everybody knows uh, from medical school that acetylcholine has muscarinergic and nicotinergic effects. So the drug has side effects. It uh, induces hypersalivation. It can even lead to bronchospasm and tachycardia, bradycardia, and uh, both because it's typically co-administered with an anti-muscarinergic agent such as glycoprolate or atropine. Mm -hmm. So, and this combination of two drugs um, is associated with, with many side effects. Um, but if, um, that's why it is so important to monitor the neuromuscular transmission properly 
and then use the recommended dose depending on these results. You know, and, and some anesthetists use peripheral nerve stimulators and they just then measure visually the response. Yeah. But it has been shown in many studies that our eyes are not capable of identifying uh, such a neuromuscular block when the train of four ratio is 50%. So it is good to have um, the opportunity to use quantitative monitoring. Having that said, it's also important to, um, to mention that we are hoping in future we will have a little bit more specific reversal agents. Great. Thanks very much to you, Dr. Matthias Ackerman. Thank you very much, Dr. Walker. And again, that paper is available for free on our website. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.